This is out of Leaders Eat Last. But the hallmark of a leader is that is the person that will put themselves between danger and the group. And when that happens, that group will do anything to achieve the mission. Hello and welcome to The Wardroom, a podcast dedicated to the leadership development of the U.S. Navy's engineering duty officers. I'm your host, Commander Matthew Horton. Today on the podcast, we are joined by Admiral Samuel J. Paparo, Commander of the United States Pacific Fleet. Admiral Paparo's previous assignments include Commander, U.S. Naval Forces, Central Command, U.S. Fifth Fleet, and Combined Maritime Forces, Manama, Bahrain, EAs to both Commander, U.S. Fleet Forces Command, and the Chief of Naval Operations, OPNAV N-80 Branch Head, and the J-3 at U.S. CENTCOM, among many others. He is a fighter pilot with thousands of hours in F-14s, F-15s, and F-A-18s, and a graduate of Top Gun. And I want to personally thank him for taking time out of his busy schedule to talk with us today. So grab a cup of coffee and join us in the wardroom. Come, welcome to the wardroom, sir. Matt, thank you very much. Yes, sir. Thank you very much. Well, I'm going to go ahead and jump right in, sir. So I, I think it's important for us as engineering duty officers to remain grounded in our firm support of the operational fleets. And part of that is a sense of urgency that comes with an understanding of the nature of the threat that the fleet faces. Would you describe for us the pressing threat that the fleet faces here in the Indo-PACOM? Thanks, Matt. I really appreciate it. Really appreciate the chance to address the team on these challenges moving forward and really appreciate the teamwork moving forward. And with this comes a point that should be very evident to all, which is that none of us can do this alone. And the engineering community represents a sine qua non, a without which not. We will not be able to prevail and protect our freedom, our well-being, and our security of our families and our country without the full effort of every sailor, Marine, Coast Guardsman, and civilian. And in the engineering community, this is actually the basis on which the fleets operate. So I really appreciate the opportunity to address the wardroom. We face in the People's Republic of China a threat that, uh, particularly in the maritime, unlike anything we faced since the Second World War. And imagine for a moment, if you would, the environment where we're in right now, an authoritarian state in Europe has violated the sovereignty of a central European state for living room, essentially. And here in the Pacific, we've got a revisionist power that seeks to bring to bear all of the resources of the Indo-Pacific to support its own system. Uh, if that sounds like a familiar scenario to you, you're right in saying that history may not necessarily repeat itself, but it certainly rhymes, as Mark Twain said. Four of the five, if not all five, of the threats to the nation are operating in the Indo-Pacific, and that is the PRC, Russia, North Korea, violent extremist groups, and even Iran to some extent. You know, our, our Iran doesn't necessarily recognize our CENTCOM, Indo-PACOM borders in the Indian Ocean either. And so all of them are operating, but, but, the, but the greatest threat is the People's Republic of China. And the People's Republic of China, they seek 
rejuvenation, as they call it, based on the continued delivery of economic growth in and of itself, not a problem. Military modernization to support that, potentially a problem. And the unification of Taiwan, and if necessary, by force. And this is a problem. The reason that it's a problem is that in the unification of Taiwan by force, if this happens, if the nine-dash line becomes the 10-dash line in parlance, then all of the nations of the Indo-Pacific, that's seven of the world's 10 largest militaries, it's 60% of the world's economy, and it's 50% of the world's population, faces a choice, which is either to submit to this coercion and become enjoined to it, which would then be pitted against the United States, or to arm to the teeth, thus upending the security balance here in the Indo-Pacific. And so this is a challenge. And the military modernization that the People's Republic of China has been on, whether it's their missile capabilities, it's their air capabilities, it's their maritime capabilities, their information and their cyber capabilities, represents a profound challenge. And so this is a challenge that we are up against every single day. And that is, is that in the Western Pacific, we're outnumbered, as I utter these words. The People's Republic of China has now exceeded the U.S. navies in terms of the size of the battle force, not necessarily the amount of firepower, but certainly the size of the force itself. And we face a profound challenge. And for the engineering community, the short-term challenge of that is to be able to put as much of our battle force to see as quickly as we possibly can to both compete and then, if necessary, for conflict with the PRC. Well, thank you for that, sir. So, and actually tying back in, that's a good transition for me because I think the engineering duty officer communities, our core competencies kind of fall in three broad areas. There's some nuances there, but three broad areas. And that's kind of maintenance, repair, and and acquisition, both for uh, ships and um, but also systems that go on, on mm-hmm. board ships. So what can we be doing better in those areas to support the operational fleets? In order to answer the challenge of this AOR, and this challenge of this AOR is to be able to put ready units at sea and quickly, and to do so in such a way that does not ask a unit to do anything that it's not organized, manned, trained, equipped, and certified to do to avoid the mistakes of 2017. And to just say that 2017 is a period is, is a false claim we see in Bonham Richard, we see in numerous other events over the last few years, the extent to which we've got to be able to get real with ourselves and improve ourselves in those areas in maintenance, it is for the private shipyards. The challenges within the private shipyards is to work through our contracting and our work strategy in such a way that enables the private shipyards to be able to deliver vessels on time. There's a contracting strategy element to that. There is a oversight 
strategy to that, and there is a supply element to that. But generally speaking, our work in the private shipyards and the public shipyards are challenges to maintain ships in accordance with the schedule to be able to, to deliver the, the most ready fleet that we have falls under the, the ways that we go wrong is in our estimations of new work, our rework of work that we've already done, the ability to deliver on workforce efficiency and to be able to capture learning curve among these enterprises and then the availability and planning of supply to deliver. And these four fields, new work, rework, workforce efficiency, and supply, have been the four broad lines of effort that have plagued us, that have prevented our ability to deliver a ready force. For instance, I think two years ago, our days lost due to maintenance was somewhere on the order of 4,500 days lost due to maintenance. What that means in real terms is on an everyday basis, we had lost 12 ready vessels per day that could otherwise be competing with the People's Republic of China. And by competing, I mean, denying the objectives inside the first island chain, the excessive maritime claims and the rehearsals, defending our partners along the first island chain, and that's uh, being ready to perform our duties such as integrated air and missile defense and dominating outside the first island chain for those forces that would threaten the homeland or threaten our treaty partners beyond the first island chain. And so these four areas are, you know, this is how I would ask the engineering duty community to get after these problems is to understand our own problems and to understand our industry partners' problems. The industry partners' problems are predictability of work, which enables them to train and to ready a workforce. And then uh, the ordering and the coordination of supply along the way to reduce those days lo due lost to maintenance. And those are the same issues really in the private yards as well. And what they'll require is data-driven responses in order to be able to accurately predict this and then to accurately set conditions to be able to um, affect that. Years ago, we had MISMO, multi-ship, multi-option contracts. Inherent in MISMO was a moral hazard, and that was that growing availabilities was in the best interest of the commanding officers because any work that was nice to have is work that if a commanding officer could help set conditions to contract for, would do so. And then growing an availability to bring in new work was a moral hazard for the contractors because it, it you know it provided a, it, it provided a cushion for the contractors themselves. From there, we went to firm fixed price. And this has just shifted the pendulum all the way to the other side to the extent that there's no incentive for a contractor to finish a job early. There's very little basis to know if that availability is going to be 
accepted. And so finding, training, retaining a workforce that can get on the learning curve. The learning curve for shipbuilding is roughly a 0.85 learning curve. And the ability to, to, to capture that has been challenged. So finding a contracting strategy, I think, is important there. And then uh, a data-driven approaches to availabilities for the public shipyards. In terms of repair, the challenge is to build out our capability to repair in combat. And that is flyaway teams that can fly to a place and can affect repairs on battle-damaged ships using class nine supply distributed throughout the theater in order to get ships back into the action in the event of a operational plan. And so to continue to work through that capability represents a, a real challenge for the engineering duty community. And again, this is a place where the engineering duty community is going to be absolutely vital. We just celebrated a month ago the Battle of Midway. Yorktown goes, goes into the yard here in Hawaii. Uh, we need a 90-day availability. Nimitz says, you've got three. Yorktown goes off into the fight in a slightly degraded state, resulting in the greatest victory in the history of the United States Navy, purely as a factor of the ingenuity and the creativity to effect repair within the engineering duty community. This community is no different than that. And then in acquisition terms, it's, it's about speed. And presently in our battle force, we're essentially limited by the amount of yards we've got. There is Bath Iron, there's Electric Boat, there's Huntington Ingalls Newport News, there's Huntington Ingalls Pascagoula, and you know that's about it. And there's Marinette Marine in Wisconsin. And we're gonna have to build out some capability to build more warships in other places. That day is coming, as we can see. So that kind of broadly speaking, that's how I'm thinking about re maintenance, repair, and, and acquisition. A challenge for me and for the other four-star leaders in acquisition is to speed the process up by eating the risk that is inherent in our DOD 5000 series and in the horse blanket, as you see on the DAU, you know, the, the accretion of boards, bureaus, working groups, cells, reports uh, of all the various steps that are done sequentially that slows us down from an acquisition point and to realize that better is the enemy of good enough in acquisition and that we're going to have to take some added technical risk, take some added uh, risk on, you know, one of Norm Augustine's rules are, is that generally speaking, the last 10% of capability is one half of your acquisition costs and to um, make some of those realizations. So uh, I'll be working on that. Well, thank you for that comment. Actually, you know, I think that ties well into the challenges. I think that, you know, flipping the tables here or that we on the engineering duty officer side face. And, and all of this has to be, I think, put under the umbrella of fiscal challenges. You know, I think a lot of leadership challenges I see both in the EDO community and here on, and fleet staff are related to resource constraints and, and the potential gaps between programming priorities and what the fleet actually needs. So, 
in our resource limited environment, what advice would you give to the syscoms on how we can align to fleet needs, particularly when we're talking about those hard trades and, and trying to go faster? The first is is that you know I would ask is that this this risk frontier between programming priorities and fleet needs is held at my level is opnav programs the force you know and and echelon two fleets execute that and so when faced by this dilemma please seek my i supported by my staff of which you are one <laughs> <laughs> please seek our input on this so that we can close what those differences are between the programming priorities and the fleet needs themselves. Don't make the decision in a vacuum along the way. And, uh, and so that's the, you know, that's the first take that I would make is, is please elevate the decision. I can elevate that decision to the chief of naval operations or to RDA to, to be able to kind of close that dilemma that the engineering community has. The simple fact is, is that the reasons that we have strategies is, you know, strategy is you take limited resources and you maximize those to reach effect among multiple enterprises along multiple iterations. That's essentially it, the essence of what strategy is, is as well too. And so, crying in our beer about our resource constraints. There will never be a time when we're not resource constrained. And so elevating the risk decision to the risk holder is the first step that I'd ask for along the way. And we have fleet maintenance officers precisely to turn the fleets into demanding customers and to elevate those decisions to, uh, to OpNav also. And then the last thing that I would say is, is that when you're faced between, when you, when you have an individual dilemma that does not necessarily elevate to, the, uh, to, to my level, is um, do what is right and what is just and use your common sense. Just about every single person that's an engineering community has been in the operating forces. And we trust your judgment we trust your common sense, and uh, you've got to trust us also in doing what is right, what is just, what's the common sense thing, what's the thing that makes sense. Maybe it doesn't align completely with the programming priorities. Make the call, and then when you're making the call, inform your boss, dear boss, unless otherwise directed, I intend to do X, Y, and Z. I'm doing it because of A, B, and C. The result will be LMNOP, the risk is QRSTUV, all the best, VR, SJP. SJP are my initials, by the way, Matt. Yes, sir. <laughs> yes, sir. Well, no, I appreciate that discussion, and I think that that's really great advice for the engineering duty officer community, but I would say the acquisition workforce as a whole, as well as many of our civilian workforce within our shipyards and, and RMC structures, is to make sure that we have a firm understanding of how the fleet operates, how it's organized, what the fleet commanders, both on la uh, land and pack side, what priorities are and the relationship between the, the TICOMs and the number of fleets, I think it's all important. So, sir, I really do appreciate that. So, shift gears a little bit on you here, uh, and I want to laser focus in on some of the leadership development issues that are kind of ongoing in the EDO community. So, the leadership development framework for the engineering duty officer community has identified 
two targeted attributes for FY22 and 23, and those are developing others and initiative. How can we, as the EDO community, better leverage those attributes in serving the fleet? And, and I would add to that if there's other ones that you think yeah. are, are important. You know, first is I wouldn't call it developing others. I would call it developing ourselves because there's never an other in our enterprises. <laughs> that's, you know, that's, that's step one. And developing, developing ourselves is that we talk about what the vectors of what it takes to develop ourselves as, uh, as sailors and civilians. And it begins with the academic background that's going to enable us to reach higher levels of skills. And so life is a constant series of learning. I've enjoyed making education a hobby over the course of my career. And so I've done, you know, I don't hold myself out as this great paragon of naval virtue. It was more or less because I enjoyed it. But as an example, I have done the Air War College, the Naval War College, and the Air Command and Staff College, all by correspondence over the years, because I've just been kind of on a journey of learning. And uh, it was important to me to get a STEM graduate degree at the Naval War College in the Ops Research Systems Analysis, and then a non-STEM graduate degree in International Relations, because that's kind of the essence of some of the things that we do. And, um, and one of those degrees came while as an 06. So, uh, so I think from a development standpoint, a constant effort to educate oneself from an academic standpoint. And then there are technical, there is a technical track to this that is different from the academic. You know, when we think about the academic, we think about the theory, the technical are kind of the nuts and bolts. And that's, uh, a continued emphasis to make to make progress along technical uh, certifications, whether that's your DIWEA certification or uh, through a training continuum within within your mission set, um, that's an important element. Uh, the third vector is the experiential vector. And um, for myself and my own career, I really valued, a broad-based experiences in the things that I've pursued. Uh, it, there's the old Isaiah Berlin, the hedgehog and the fox. And the, the hedgehog knows one thing very well, and the fox knows many things. And I've always aspired to be the fox. So I've had tours with the Army as a provincial reconstruction team commander. I had exchange duty with the Air Force flying the F-15. And, you know, and then joint duty as well as OPNAV duty in order to just kind of build out a wide base of experiential bases. And I didn't really set out to do that, but each time I was individually seeking duty, I was seeking different skill sets that, that led to this, that led to this point. And so those are some of the things that one by one are the things that people can do. And then the most important thing for developing ourselves is to trust in the creativity of our people and to give only so much guidance that enables the full unlocking of creativity for the workforce. 
And so rather than say, take that hill and use this many infantry, this much artillery, this much close air support, the guidance is, is take that hill, apply the principles of calculated risk. Please present your courses of action in order to do that. And then work through not necessarily a command and control, but a command and feedback to be able to give as much autonomy to that next level down human being. And that allows them to, that, that, you know, with the academic skill sets, with the technical skill sets, with the broad base of experience, unlocks that creativity because none of us grow until we're taken out of our comfort zone. You don't get to be a better runner by jogging. You don't get to be stronger by doing a light day every day in the gym. You know, you're always stretching, always taking yourself out of your, out of your comfort zone. And then um, the way that feedback is provided is the hardest thing to do is to give negative feedback. So trusting in the, the hunger for criticism that people have to get better and understanding that every single person comes to work wanting to achieve the mission and to get better every day. And, you know, you don't have to be a jerk about delivering that feedback. Just say, hey, when you did this thing here, the result of this was this. And here's how I might have done it differently along the way. And then what do you think? You know, and then engage in a conversation about how that person can become, uh, can, can, can become better along the way. So, and, and that leads into the initiative. Uh, conversation because the best way to unlock people's ability to to demonstrate initiative is to have the generosity of spirit to provide opportunities for the initiative of the person to come in i'm talking with you matt you know you're you're on my staff you have got skill sets that i have not achieved this command can't operate without your engineering expertise and the expertise that's provided uh, you know through the N43 in this in this command and that, and so giving the opportunities for the sailor or for the civilian to unlock their creativity and then watching them take that initiative frequently it, it really means that we as leaders have to set the conditions for people to unlock their initiative and then watch them go. There'll be times when a detail is important to you and you, you've got to give that detailed guidance. You know, it's not, it, the, the one time that you give detailed guidance doesn't make you a, a micromanager. But if you're giving detailed guidance every single time, you might be a micromanager. <laughs> so don't be that guy. <laughs> no, I appreciate very much the conversation. I, I'm hearing a lot of... Um, mission command type language there. And I think it's, um, I think it was Stanley McChrystal's team of team books. He, he talks a lot about a lot of what you're talking there in terms of the difference between giving, you know, very detailed orders to your people versus I think it was, you know, Commodore Perry's direction was, hey, go over the horizon and open trade to Japan. And that was the whole charge of his command. And, and if I've never, if people have never had a chance to see uh, your commander's update briefs, I strongly encourage everybody to get an opportunity to do so because I think you, I've seen that modeled in you, sir, and in, uh, in the guidance that you give to your subordinate commanders. 
you know what is it the uh, if there's a doubt there's no doubt right on uh, yeah. you say it so many times i wonder if you'd comment a little bit just on the importance of mission command and why it's so important that that we carry it out in that way one is that one is you get into a habit of giving people precise guidance on how to do things and and um for want of a better word, punishing those that don't execute it to the letter, then people will not have the agency or the habits of mind or habits of action to act when they see a situation that pops up. And um, then the, the U.S. Pacific Fleet is approximately 140,000 people. And that is 140,000 unique creatures unique creations that each have a unique intelligence that have unique experiences and the vector of those 140,000 human souls must be oriented against the common goals of our nation and to run everyone's intelligence through your own is to deprive the nation of the sum total of those one of the creativity of those 140,000 souls. It is in fact how the US Navy operates. You know, another example of that is that is Lord Vice Admiral Horatio Nelson as the Battle of Trafalgar is joined sends a message that England expects that each man shall do his duty. This is the specifics of the of the orders this was achieved by multiple engagement with the commanders where uh, through roundtable discussions they arrived at a common philosophy of the fight and then when the fight was enjoined that autonomy was given to each individual ship and the result was a great victory not unlike midway <laughs> so uh and so there there's there's a lot of it, a lot of those examples and and if a read of joint of uh nwp 3-56 or nttp 3-56 talks about the the command by negation command by negation is the is the sense that um i'll give you commander's intent and you act until i tell you to stop this is why I send notes to my boss, the CNO, or to my boss, Admiral Aquilino, that says, unless otherwise directed, I intend to do X, Y, and Z. And then if I don't get any feedback from them, I go. And frequently I'll act on my own authority as well. So I enjoy that same kind of relationship of mission command um, as they do. And so um, that's why and that's how it's important. And it begins with setting the conditions. 99 times out of 100, you're going to get something that A, you want, and B, that exceeds your vision of what you could get. That one out of 99 chance is a small price to pay. And when that one out of 99 thing happens, then I, as a commander, eat it. And by that, I mean, dear boss, this is what's happened. This is, how, this is how I fail to set conditions for this, and this is what I intend to do about it. This is out of leaders eat last, but the hallmark of a leader is that is the person that will put themselves between danger and the group. And when that happens, 
that group will do anything to achieve the mission. Oh, I appreciate that, sir. Thank you so much for that discussion. So I want to tap into your years of experience and kind of looking back broadly over your career and maybe kind of hit a couple of touch points along the way. What leadership advice would you give to Lieutenant Paparo or Commander Paparo or even Rear Admiral Paparo? Well, first, I'm surprised they promoted all three of those fools. It's the first thing that I'll tell you. And so uh, to Lieutenant Paparo, I would say um, to have more trust in my leadership that when orders came down that I didn't understand, that they had a broader and a deeper vision into why those orders came down. And I would have looked deeper into what I could do to affect that mission effectively. And that's a common trait among junior officers is that they see something that doesn't square with their view of the world and they decide it's because the bosses are all screwed up. And, you know, so when I first went to major staff duty, I couldn't believe how dumb I had been when I was in a J, when I was a JO and I was sitting in the back room talking about how effed up my seniors were. And uh, looking back, I thank my seniors for forgiving me for making and thinking such stupid things along the way. Um, to Commander Paparo, the advice that I would give, I think Commander Paparo was just as almost equally, um, almost, almost equally making the mistakes of, of Lieutenant Paparo. And then... Um, uh, and then one star Paparo may be the same thing, too. And, and so, you know, my whole life has been a life of believing that the way that I saw the world was the universe itself and believing that my little rules were the laws of nature. When each step along the way that I've made along the way, you know, I've learned just that there are just sometimes factors that are outside my understanding. So I would have been a a more patient leader. Uh, Joe Votel has an expression which is called trust the bastards at squad. And that's you're in a fire team and you think that what you're doing is totally screwed up. But at the squad level, which is a 12-person team, the squad leader, who's usually, usually a sergeant, um, has a better idea of, of what's going on. So trusting the bastards at squad is what I think I would do if I'm giving advice to those younger versions of myself and i hope i i hope i keep my own advice because i have bosses you know i've got cno i've got com indopaycom and, and they have bosses secnav osd and they have bosses the president of the united states <laughs> so um i think that's the i think that's the advice that i would give which would be trust leadership and then do all i can at my level to effect change and then um and uh yeah i think that's the advice that i would give and I, i'll probably give that advice to my own self now even even moving on you know with each step in rank i've just been the recipient of greater humility in understanding the limits of what i can see and to be more patient and more understanding of the guidance that i've gotten
Sound guidance no matter where we are in our career, sir. I appreciate it. Last question for you, Admiral, and this is my favorite one every episode. Do you have any good book recommendations for us? Uh, I recently finished Noise by, uh, I think it's Cass Sunstein, Danny Kahneman, uh, uh, Olivier Saboni. There may be another author in there as well. And Noise is about our data sets and our decision making. And, and, and so there's bias and then there's noise. And bias is, is uh, the extent to which our shot group is maybe tight but might be off target. And then noise, maybe our shot group might be on target and it might be widely spaced. And noise is all about just what terrible decision makers human beings are. And it's about finding more data-driven solutions that provide for more faithful viewpoints of data. And, and so I, I thought that that was, a, that was a, a good book. And so it, they talk about decision-making in juries, in sentencing guidelines among judges. Those are just some of the examples that are in that, in that book. And then um, I've read, uh, you know, I, I, I do try to read. People say, uh, you know, how can you read when you're so busy reading email and that other, those other kinds of things, too? No matter how busy you are, you have to keep reading. And I like to keep going some fiction and some nonfiction at the same time. You know, you'll hear people all the time say, I don't even read any. I never read fiction. I just read nonfiction, like histories, too. Look, unless you were there, it's fiction. <laughs> you know, <laughs> no matter what you're reading is coming through the prism of human understanding. So it will always be biased and be noisy. So I, so I, I try to mix up the reading uh, just to give the brain, to keep the brain engaged, but to give it, to give it a break from focusing on the same thing, hearkening back to our discussion of the hedgehog and the fox. And, uh, and so, um, so, you know, I'll offer that. And, and another recent book that I read was The Fleet at Flood Tide, which was uh, Jim Hornfisher's last book. He just died. It was the, it was the, uh, the book of, about the last, the last years of the Pacific campaign during the Second World War. And that was an important book to me as well. And, um, you know, I've read, been you know looking at a couple of other books along the way uh, as well i really enjoy malcolm gladwell also and so uh my most recent read from malcolm gladwell was the bomber mafia uh, which was the story of um the air campaign it's it's more than the air campaign but you know almost everything in malcolm gladwell is about human decision making and that blend between uh the science of data and statistics as it runs through the prism of human thought and human emotion. I always find those books to be interesting. Well, thank you for those recommendations, Tom. I'll be sure to add them to my bookshelf. And I'll tell you, my wife's a professional reader. She will second your advice to mix it up with some fiction and nonfiction. It, it, she always tells me for fiction, there's no better way to put yourselves in somebody else's shoes, their mind, than to read their thoughts on the page. So, Admiral, again, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today, sir, and I appreciate it. 
Ton of fun. Blessings to all. Can't do it without you. So please appreciate your teamwork and my thanks for your teamwork. Thank you for joining us in the wardroom. Special thanks to our sound engineer, Lieutenant Chantel Lavender. If you have questions for our guest, comments, or suggestions, you can email us at thewardroompodcast@gmail.com, at gmail.com or tweet or follow us on Twitter at wardroompodcast. Well, some of you may know this is actually my last episode, and I've had a great time doing this, but fortunately, I get to leave it in great hands, and I want to take this time to introduce Lieutenant Commander, excuse me, Commander Select, Kyle Miller. And I've had the great pleasure of knowing Kyle back when he was Ensign Miller, and I was Lieutenant J.G. Horton on USS Roosevelt when we were divos together. So, Kyle, I want to throw it over to you to introduce yourself. Hey, thanks, Matt. Hey, yeah, I'm really excited to take over for you on the Wardroom Podcast. First episode coming up is Rear Admiral Wynn in charge of the EDO Reservists. So look forward to that episode coming out mid-August. Well, it sounds great, Kyle, and I'm looking forward to hearing it. Back over to you. Take us out. We look forward to meeting you again in the Wardroom.